This podcast has bad words. <laughs> Hello, patrons. Welcome to Ask the Minimalist number 48. Man, we're here in front of a live studio audience. Heck yeah. <laughs> That's your cue. <laughs> I don't know if I need to like pay them more or what's going on here. They're striking, but only for like a second. I think they're just like, do they want us to cheer every single time he says that? The answer is yes. Of course. <laughs> yes. I um, uh, We talk about avoiding the ego, but mm. clearly I'm making fun of the ego at this point. Yes. All right. Anyway, uh, patrons, true fans, VIPs, thank you so much. Podcast Sean has collected your questions and he'll be reading them. We'll rapid fire them. Ready? Podcast Sean, go. All right. First question comes from Bill. What factors did you consider in choosing to use a traditional publisher for love people use things? Mm. Long answer here, but I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. By the way, if you're watching the video version of this, you'll notice we're in our brand new studio space. Ryan and I are wearing white shirts because we have joined a cult. Throwback to and, 2010. Yeah, so when yeah. we first started TheMinimalists.com, we, um, whenever, anytime we did media, like that first year or two, we wore white button-up shirts because we were really young. We were 29 when the website started. Yeah. And we were like, okay, we're in the corporate world still, and we wanted to show people you can be these relatively normal guys with regular jobs and still sort of embrace minimalism. In retrospect, we look like cult members. <laughs> Although we're here today because we were wearing suits in the studio because we, well, we just revealed the new studio space mm -hmm. to y'all, which you'll see on the recluttering episode. And thank you, patrons, for making this possible. Yeah. We're really grateful. To Amen. answer Bill's question, Ryan, you and I, we started a publishing company 2012, mm -hmm. Asymmetrical Press. Yeah. And the reason we did that is we had self-published our first book which was called minimalism and after we self-published it we learned a whole lot we failed a whole lot and a lot of those lessons sort of combined with our good friend colin wright who has published 30 plus books at this point weird flex but okay <laughs> he has written a ton of short story collections and novels you know, sci-fi novels but mm. also a lot of non-fiction one of my favorites is some thoughts about relationships considerations is another one He's a phenomenal writer and um, has written some great books. And we wanted to come together and fail together, basically. Mm. And so we started this publishing company. We had a bunch of uh, people working with us at a time. I think at one point you were managing something like 20 interns. It was a, yeah. a large group of people. Yeah. At one point, we had nine total authors, if you count me, you and Colin. And we published over 40 books through Asymmetrical Press. So we learned a whole lot through that experiment. And then we said, okay, well, we've never gone the traditional route domestically u.s and canada outside of the u.s and canada we've always we've done we've relied on other publishers because we can't translate our work to other languages etc right let's try this out because we we had some offers from some different publishers we didn't take the highest offer we went with the publisher we thought would best support the book yeah and um i think we were pretty happy with the overall process but i, I will say this i don't know how different it actually was from us doing it on our own like maybe they picked up a few things that some burdens that we'd have to pick up. Yeah. But I, I'm a DIY kind of guy. So is Ryan. Yeah. I mean, the uh, one of the reasons why, you know, I think we chose to go with a big publisher is because they have just different vehicles to communicate books that we don't have access to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I thought, because really, we probably could have made more money 
I we would have definitely made more money if we had published it on our own. Right. So it was more about like, okay, how can we get in front of as many people as possible? And we really felt like the traditional publisher would help us get there. And, you know, I wish I could sit here and say, it totally worked. Or the opposite. Oh, yeah, you know, we tried it and it didn't work. But, like, I really don't know. Yeah. It's kind of too early to tell, I feel like. Yeah, I think so. And so, like, I haven't been displeased by the whole thing. It's not like it's been a, a, an unfortunate process. But it has been, okay, what lessons are we going to pick up from this a year from now? And I think some of those lessons are we really enjoy doing things on our own. Yeah. We're not on some podcast network. We're not relying on anyone else for anything. And with this publisher, sometimes you're at their mercy, right? If they want to set up, cert- set, set up certain interviews or, or whatever, it's sort mm-hmm. of up to them to, to, well, do their end of things. The distribution, yeah. the printing, all these other things. We get to hand over control of those things. But at the same time, it also means we don't influence them as much as well. And we don't mm-hmm. participate in as much of the process. So what is, uh, what's the old quote there? That there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Mm. And that, I think, is especially true with this. There are quite a few trade-offs with going with a big publisher. The question is, are these the trade-offs that you wanted? And I think it's still to be determined on that. Yeah. What, what will we do in the future? I don't know. I, I could see if we do ever publish another book, I could certainly see us going on our own again. Or there's a chance we go with another publisher. Yeah. To be determined. Yeah. Anna has a question for us. Yes. How do you approach expressing your opinion in a respectful way to others' opinions and views on life? I love your podcast also because of the way you express your opinions, which are usually strong and differ from others. (laughs) And I'm trying to find a way to apply assertiveness in conversations. I feel like I failed you, Anna. Um, mm. and, and here's why, and this is me, I, I feel like I've failed because, yes, I have in the past expressed some strong opinions, but now I would have to ask myself, let's say I'm asking this question uh, of myself. How do you approach expressing your opinion in res- a respectful way to others? Um, well, why do I feel so compelled? Why do I feel so damn compelled to express my opinion? Yeah, I think we're all guilty of that. I mean, the first question I would ask Anna is, do they want to hear your opinion? And maybe they do. Mm. You know, maybe it's a conversation you're having with some friends, family, whatever, coworker. Ryan, does this shirt make me look fat? (laughs) No. See, I want to know his opinion about this. (laughs) Um, But but here's the thing. Whenever you're trying to talk to someone, uh, regardless of what it's about, if it's a difficult conversation, whether it's sharing an opinion or uh, maybe it's sharing a preference because, you know, that's, that's a difficult conversation sometimes. Yes. People want to be respected. They want to be understood. They want to be loved. So, I mean, that's how I would answer your question head on, head on, Anna. But I do think the first question to ask yourself is, do they want your opinion? If the answer is yes, then focus on, uh, you know, what do they call it? Non-violent? No. Non-violent communication. Yeah, non-violent communication. There's, There's a great a, book by uh, uh, Rosenberg. Yeah, you can check out the book. In fact, yeah. uh, maybe Sean. I don't, do we put show notes to these? If so, we'll put a link to it. If not, just look it up. Yeah. Rosenberg at your local independent bookshop. Yeah, so w- when, you're, when you're talking, are you respecting the other person? Are you showing them that you understand where they're coming from? And uh, yeah, are, you know, ultimately, are you showing them love? Like if you, t- if you take that approach with those three things in mind, it's, it's a lot easier to have those difficult uh, conversations. But uh, I wouldn't encourage you just going around and stopping people on the street and telling them your, telling them your opinion. I mean, make sure it's appropriate. 
You know what, Ryan? The question you asked is so powerful. Do they want my opinion? Mm. And I thought of another question as soon as you said it. Hmm. Do I want my opinion? <laughs> and the answer is usually no. I, I don't want to pick up new opinions because opinions... Turn in, if I hold them tightly, they turn into beliefs. Beliefs, if I cling to those, they turn into dogma. Mm. And that dogma obscures the truth. And so I'm going to get down to, for me, what is the truth? And that's what I'd rather express regardless of what my opinion is. And if I can drop the opinion altogether, more power to me. Yeah. It's not always easy to do that, obviously. I pick up opinions and beliefs all the time because our thoughts lead to these things. Mm. But... If I cannot cling to those opinions, if I hold them loosely, then maybe we can have a, 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 a nice conversation. I think one other thing that people really respect between me and you, Ryan, is we have this dynamic that if I bring up something and you don't agree with it, mm -hmm. or you bring up something I don't agree with it, we don't aim to take the other person down. We aim to understand their perspective. Bingo. So, Anna, don't focus on being assertive. Focus on uh, helping someone understand and... In the same token, you understand. Read the essay that I, um, well, actually, we just did a whole episode it's called The Advice Epidemic. Check that out. The Advice Epidemic was episode, I forget what it was, Sean, maybe. Anyway, it was the most recent podcast episode. You can go find it. I think you'll enjoy that. The maximal episode for that was shooting all over ourselves. <laughs> and it really talk about how trying to convince anyone of anything is unloving. Cindy has a question for us. Yes. How do you appreciate your OCD? Most recently, when did you experience a flare-up? And what are some things you do to keep it from getting the best of you? Mm. She's describing OCD like herpes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when did you have a flare-up recently? Yeah. Um, I got this cold sore. And, uh, <laughs> I yeah. feel like your OCD flares every day. Like There's not a day it doesn't flare up. I think that's a good point. So, Ryan, here's the question. Do you ever appreciate my OCD? Um, I I don't know if it's your OCD or if it's your, like, uh, uh, your attention to detail, which is a result from the OCD. Yes. So, yeah, and so maybe in that what, respect. What am I getting from the obsessiveness? Because here's the thing. Um, OCD as a disorder clinically or whatever, that's pathologizing something. Mm -hmm. The reason I really like Cindy's question is what she's saying is, hey, is maybe there's a benefit to this. We don't have to pathologize everything. Maybe we can just be obsessive, and that is actually something that is beneficial to us. In yeah. fact, passion, I think, often involves a particular kind of obsession. You Ooh, see anyone who's elite yeah. or excellent at something, aren't they obsessed with that thing? Yes. In a way that drives their performance, their art, their outcome. It has nothing to do with the outcome. They're just so obsessed mm. with whatever they're doing. And for me, that's why, you know, yes, for me, work is more fun than fun <laughs> because I get really obsessed about what we're doing here, about contributing beyond myself, but also being able to sort of put these pieces together. I get so obsessed about it in a way that serves me and also in a way that serves the greater good. And I think that is when I really appreciate it. When that obsessiveness serves other people, then man, it seems like it's worthwhile. Yeah. So how do you handle it? Like when it really starts to, you know, get the best of you, how do you, I see it for what it is. Mm. It, and I think, cause quite often what we try to do is like, what do I do when I get too obsessive? Mm. No, the obsessive and especially the compulsion, compulsion just doing, right? 
And it's like, let's say I, my OCD manifested because I, I, it doesn't do this. But for some people, like, I have to open a door three times. Mm -hmm. well, what do you do when that happens? Well, it's not, the answer isn't, well, open it a fourth time, right? right? There's nothing to do. It's simply seeing the absurdity of what is, is appearing. Mm. You can be obsessive about a thing in a way that serves you. What she's talking about, when it flares up and gets the best of you, that's when it is no longer serving you. Well, mm. What do you do? You don't do anything. You recognize it, you let it be, and it passes. Mm. Sarah has a question for us. As part of the journey toward minimalism, how do I minimize demands in my life, particularly from significant others, my husband, my children, my elderly mother? I try hard to meet my duties as a wife, mom, and daughter, but I frequently feel overwhelmed and exhausted. Mm. Oh, man. Uh, Sarah, I feel for you so much because it sounds like you have a lot of responsibility on your plate. And I wish I could just sit here and say, well, you know, just just let your family and friends down or, you know, minimize them. But like, it's not that easy, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, that would be easy. Yeah. You're going right. to create all kinds of other problems. Right. Absolutely. So, oh man. Um, if I was in your shoes, I would maybe get with my, my uh, family and help set some very clear boundaries because that's, that might be, what is happening is you don't have clear defined boundaries with, with these folks. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to not give advice, but it's just rolling out, rolling out of me. Well, two things <laughs> appear for me right now. There's two words that show up here that I think they involve some stories we tell ourselves. So the first thing I see is I, my, these, what did she call it? Demands. Yeah. Demands on mm. my life. How do I minimize the demands? These might be either demands they have of you, that they have no right to have of you, right? It's a great point. So, Ryan, I have, what if I demand you show up here every morning at 3 a.m.? You could yeah. just be like, well, no, screw you. Like, that's an absurd demand, and, yeah. and, and you're going to recognize it. But also, and I think more important, most of these demands might be internal. These are demands you think they have of you, but they're not actually making those demands. They might mm. have some, certain ambiguous expectations, but you could simply ask them, hey, what are your expectations here? Yeah. yeah. And and if they can articulate it, then you can go back to them and say, hey, that's an unrealistic expectation. And, and let me explain why it's an unrealistic expectation. And so you can have that conversation. It, it's unrealistic, not because you have a poor expectation, but simply because I don't have the resources to meet an expectation like that. Yeah. The other thing that really stood out is I try hard to meet my duties as a wife, mm. mother, daughter, etc. Well, that this is a construct duties don't exist in the real world. You've just told yourself a story that a mother does these 17 things. A wife does these 42 things. Mm. A, a daughter has to do 16 different things every day in order to fulfill his or her duties. I wish a daughter would be her duties always. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't mean to mix up my pronouns here. But um, so it might just be a story you're telling yourself about duties. Duties don't exist but we tell ourselves that i have a duty to do this no, no 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 what is your outcome what do you want and then the actions those are what you might consider your duties now if you want a bunch of different things that are in conflict with each other no wonder you're stressed out mm. it might be that the things you think you want aren't actually what you want at all 
You know, the other thing too, Sarah, is when you start saying no to some of these duties or expectations or whatever you want to call it, uh, whoever you're saying no to, like help them see what you're saying yes to. Mm. So is it less stress? Is it more time to work on that passion project you've been putting off? Like whatever it is that you're getting by saying no, uh, it just help 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 your family understand that. I mean, if they love you and they want you to be happy, then they'll support you. Especially if they all have these different expectations. If we have what, five other people in the room with us right now, plus Jess is out there roaming somewhere in, in America, <laughs> and and if they all have ten expectations of each of us, now mm-hmm. all of a sudden that's what six people times ten. It's sixty expectations. Wow. Now I have sixty duties. Well, I can't say yes to all of them. I'm going to say no to everything important if I'm trying to meet all of their expectations. Yeah. That's why that's critical. Yeah. Taylor has a question for us. Is there a balance between wanting to improve your circumstances and being content with where you are? Hmm. I think, by and large, improvement is a farce. Here's what I mean by that. We try to improve a bunch of things that don't need to be improved. It's the whole... This is why minimalism was so appealing to me early on. Ryan, what did you and I do in our 20s? Let's buy a bunch of... Our lives suck when we were 18 because of abuse and uh, childhood neglect. Mm -hmm. And you were getting beat up by your stepfather. Mm -hmm. All these things were happening in our homes. Our lives suck. We need to improve our lives, right? (laughs) Right. We'll do that through stuff. And so we improved our lives, but it, did, it didn't improve our lives. Mm. It just gave mm. us different types of misery. Yeah. It was a shinier jail cell in a way. And, and so minimalism was so appealing to me because it helped me realize the way to, quote, improve my life was not through addition, not through doing more. It was through doing less. It was through subtraction, having less, having enough, identifying what is enough. And so... The heart of your question here, improve your circumstances versus being content with where you are, Mm -hmm. I would argue they're the same thing. Being content with where you are immediately improves your circumstances. Mm. You can tweet that podcast, Yeah, that's good. The other thing that came to mind, too, for me is uh, when you think about improving your life, who is it for? Is it for you? Is it because it's something you truly desire? Or is it because someone said you should do this? Yeah. Or is it because uh, you, you are comparing yourself to someone else and you feel like, well, I, I should be at the same level that this person is at. So, um, yeah, get to the why you want to improve. That might help you make the decision as well. Stan has a question for us. Is he back from the dead? Too soon. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> no, that, uh, the seven-year thing is up, right? Seven years we're allowed to talk about someone after they oh, die. Is that, yeah, it is up. Yeah, yeah. not poor, poor Stan, one of our favorite people on earth. In fact, the very last essay in our book, Essential, is an essay about Stan, our good friend in the corporate world. I have no doubt that he'd be with us right now. Yeah. He died at 36, but lived a beautiful, full life. Died suddenly, and um, he really lived in ways that many of us don't live. And uh, mm-hmm. the essay was really talking about how he was um, sort of a beacon of of life, and yeah, and, um, I, looked, yeah. I looked up him, looked up to him a lot, and it wasn't because he was six seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did uh, look like an NFL player. Yeah, but um, I say that with Stan here because put your picture on here. I'm saying this for all the patrons. 
We don't identify with cartoon characters. We identify with your face. This is private patrons. You can go ahead and put your picture on your Patreon profile. So we're interacting with you, not some cartoon rabbit. <laughs> Stan has a question for us. How would you coexist with people who think one thing, say another thing, and do another thing? Mm. Especially if they are your parents or relatives. Mm. Yes. So, so you know, what's fascinating about the, the implications of this question, it's as though we're supposed to treat relatives or close relatives like parents differently from the rest of the world. Mm. But that's not love. Here, here's a, this is, to truly understand love, and I'm just beginning to grasp it, so it's really hard to talk about. But Ryan, I love you, and that means I see you as you are without trying to change you. So it's impossible for me to love you more than I love Emma, mm. right? Because I see you more and try to change you less more. It, 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 yeah. it doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Now... I might like you more than Emma. I've known you for a long time. And, and, and so we, conf we conflate. We start conflating these, these things. And so the heart of Stan's question here is you're struggling to coexist with people that you love. Mm. There's a lot of pain in that, right? Mm. Because, well, in order to love them, one must coexist with them in some way. Mm -hmm. Now, that could be from a distance. Yeah. Sometimes we have to love someone from a distance. Yeah. You, you've, you're experiencing that with your father right now. Yeah. You have to love him from a distance because of certain dogmas that he has clinged to that has prohibited you and him from having a relationship mm -hmm. together, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so loving him from a distance, you're still coexisting with him even though you aren't interacting with him. In fact, my wife is experiencing this a lot recently with her family they have some particular beliefs that um, feel are challenged by uh, my wife's beliefs. Mm. And, and therefore, they feel as though it's difficult for them to coexist because mm. they feel as though I need to, what, convince you to change. Well, that's not loving. Mm -hmm. How do you coexist with them? You accept that they have different beliefs from you. And... You're not going to change those. If they change, they change. That's wonderful, right? But changing behavior also doesn't change a person. Yeah. It simply changes the, the habit. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it bothers you because they're doing something you wouldn't do. And, you know, if that's the case, then, I mean, let, let go of your expectations for them. Um, the other thing... I was going to say, too, oh, man, I just lost it. Um, That's right, I'll pick it back up. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I'll remember yeah. in a second here. So they say one thing. They think one thing. They say another and do another. You can't possibly know what they think. So first sure. off, you can't question their intentions. We can throw that out altogether. Sure. They say one thing and they do another. Oh, so they're like most human beings. Mm. Right? Yeah. Right. And, and yes. They, ha they have particular aspirations. Mm -hmm. And they don't always meet those aspirations. Mm -hmm. Okay. They have a sense of right and wrong. They have a sense of justice, but sometimes they behave in ways that are unjust. Mm. Okay. But just because they know what the truth is and they tell a lie, so to speak, doesn't make the truth any less true. Yeah. It is still the truth 
whether or not they act upon it, whether or not they believe it. And therefore, the only problem you really have here is you needing them to see things the same way that you see them. Yeah. I remember I remember what I was going to say. Let me get this hair off your beautiful white shirt. Thank you. <clears throat> We're all hypocrites, every single one of us. And judging someone else for being a hypocrite is um it's it is really judging yourself. So for me when I see someone saying one thing and doing another uh as long as they're as long as they're not hurting anything more than my feelings then I, I try not to let it eat me up inside too much because I too am a hypocrite with some things. And, you know, it's the, the level of what hypocrite are you? That's, mm. that's kind of, kind of how I live my life. But, or, or I, I talk about shitheads, which is kind of a joke. And Josh hates when I talk about this, but mm. we're all shitheads. It's just the, like, how big of a shithead are you? That's the question. <laughs> I'm the king of the shitheads. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, I think that um, no one's hurting you. Mm-hmm. No one has the power to hurt you, to make you anxious, to make you um, upset, to make you angry. You have that power. And you and I have talked about this on past episodes, but mm-hmm. you are now outsourcing your contentment to their behavior. Mm. You are punishing yourself because your friends and family and parents are misbehaving. And I say that in air quotes or vocal quotes because misbehaving according to your standards Mm. or to your expectations. I expect them to do what they say, but they don't do what they say, so I'm going to punish me. Hmm. Ouch. Yeah. Michelle has a question for us. Why do we, at times, find ourselves clinging to relationships we know in our hearts we're ready to let go of? Ooh. Yeah, You, you don't. Never. So you know in your mind that you're ready to let go of them. Mm. If you know in your heart, another way to say that is you know it in your bones, you know it in your viscera, you know it emotionally. If you actually know it, you never cling. Mm. Knowing it, truly understanding it, that clinging drops altogether. The problem is we know it intellectually. You know this person isn't, quote, good for you. This person is not compatible. Or maybe this person isn't loving. This person doesn't have a a good rapport, chemistry with me, whatever it might be. You know it in your head. This is just a mismatch. And it's creating a toxic environment, right? Yeah. But you don't yet know it here in your heart. Because if you knew it in your heart, if you absolutely did, you'd stop clinging immediately. Yeah. You know... When you're in a perniciousness relationship, uh, at least that perniciousness is predictable, and so there's like a security thing going on with really bad relationships. Yes, it's like people who are addicted to drama. I know friends and family who constantly are sabotaging themselves. And the reason why they sabotage themselves is because they know what the outcome is going to be. And it's the same thing with a uh, pernicious relationship. So there's a little bit of discomfort that you have to go through when you uh, break up with someone because now you have uncertainty. But yeah, I don't know. Josh always talks about uh, you know asking what the best thing could happen would be mm. instead of the worst thing. And uh, that might help you get through it a little bit. But yeah, I, I, there's something about the certainty and the security of a bad relationship. And I'm talking from experience because I have hung on to some very pernicious relationships and 
really I was just like delaying the pain. You're yeah, delaying the inevitable, delaying yeah. the misery, mm-hmm. right? And so let's talk about, well, let's talk about that delayed misery. It's a fear of what might happen, right? Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is fear is 100% cultural. When, and there's two types of fear. There's immediate and present danger fear in mm. the moment right, right now. A tiger walks through the door over here. Right. Immediate present danger. It's not worried about the future. Oh, what if my 401k goes down tomorrow? I don't care about any of that. Sure. It's, I care about what's happening in this moment. Mm-hmm. That's one type of fear. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. We're talking about future fear which doesn't exist. The future does not exist. What you are f- afraid of, fear, Kapil Gupta says, fear appears whenever there are consequences. Mm. Well, yes, there will be a consequence of letting go. The consequence of letting go is you free yourself. Freedom is not always pleasurable. So you're going to lose some pleasure in the moment, mm. but you'll gain some freedom along the way. Amen. We got one more question here from Stephanie. Are you ever done being a minimalist? It seems more of a way of life than something you do. Hmm. Yeah, I guess yeah. we could be done. Yeah, we could be done. All right. See, See ya. ya. The minimalists. <laughs>